There's nothing more important than the spaces you live in, in my opinion, for shaping you how you feel about things, making you feel positive about life and love and everything else. It's been designed and created with the idea of making your life better. Love it. I mean, it's so important. Hello, welcome to Homing In, the podcast that explores the meaning of home in people's lives. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House and Inigo. My guest this week is the legendary photographer Nick Knight. Now in his mid-60s and still working tirelessly, Nick has collaborated with many of the big names in the fashion world over the years. In 2000, he founded the influential website Show Studio, which pioneered the use of moving image in fashion and has experimented with technologies like avatar creation, 3D imaging and AI. Today I've come to Nick's studio in central London to find out more about his incredibly colourful life through the lens of the homes he's lived in. Over a cuppa and a croissant we talk about his rebellious stint as a skinhead in his teens, the life-changing experience of building a house in his 20s and the day he turned Lady Gaga into a man. He's full of wisdom and wit and this is certainly a conversation I will always remember. Nick, yes. very good to meet you. And thank, to meet you thank you for having us here. Um, let's go back into the past and talk mm. about your childhood home, first of all. Where, where were you born and what was the childhood home like? I was born in Queen Charlotte's Hospital in 1958. My parents had just built a small house in a suburb of Richmond called Petersham. And they were very inspired by new forms of architecture and uh, sort of modernism sweeping through Europe after the war. And the Festival of Britain had been incredibly important, I think, culturally to people to show new materials, new ways of building, new ways of living, etc., etc., etc. My father and mother were very much inspired by that. They brought a small plot of land and built a small Festival of Britain house upon it, which had underfloor heating, a very open plan, apart from the fact it was about the size of two shoeboxes. And it had the kitchen, I remember, was all different colours of formica, so bright yellow and red and blue and Venetian blinds in, 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 in red plastic. It, it was a very bright, modern, optimistic house. We stayed there for a year and then moved up to Cambridge Circus. Then my father was posted to Paris, in 1966. Mm -hmm. My father was a psychologist working for the RAF at the time. He was posted to NATO as part of the diplomatic corps. And that was my first experience of a very different culture. So I had been brought up for my first six years of my life in very open plan, very optimistic, very futuristic surroundings. And all of a sudden, at the tender age of six, I was dropped into what was almost certainly a glorious French apartment. It was at number 94 Boulevard Flandrin, um, just in Porte Dauphine. And I got there and I hated it. Did you? For me, it was like a horror film. It was big, dark, roomy. Um, I remember in the dining area, there was these big sort of Doric columns down the middle of it. It was incredibly grand. It was a diplomatic corps apartment. But as a six-year-old child, I used to be brought up in spaces that were all about light and openness. This was, this, you know, the, the curtains were heavy. It faced onto a central courtyard. All the floors were dark wood. I remember lying on the floor and crying and crying and crying. My parents, I think, quite knew what to do with me. So about six o'clock in the evening, we'd been there since 10 in the morning, we'd cry my eyes out. My parents took me down to the Etoile and went to one of the little French cafes, totally Jean-Luc Godard, and immediately I fell in love with Paris. 
I remember I have an elder brother, three years older than me, and playing on those sort of flipper machines and kind of, you know, some sort of French music playing on the jukebox, beautiful French couples hanging around and being very Jean-Luc Godard. Literally, I fell in love. And from that moment onwards, I've been a Europhile, Francophile, whatever you want to call it. And um, my memories really wasn't so much the apartment, but I would go to the cocktail parties at NATO. My father would occasionally take his two young children along. And my mother was buying clothes from Rive Gauche, and it was all sort of turquoise miniskirts and boas. The, the diplomatic corps at the time was a bit swinging. It, was a bit, it wasn't very fusty-dusty. It's a very polished sort of environment. Mm. Uh, American military thing, everything is sharp and clean and polished and everything else. And the, the cocktail parties were incredibly luxurious and incredibly sort of, you know, the Argentinian ambassador and all, you know, all, it's all that world, which was a real eye-opener for me. Um, however, as a six-year-old, I wasn't really so much into all of that. And I remember most of my time was sitting on the grass verges around this roundabout, just next to the Bois de Boulogne, um, chasing little tiny field mice. Um, but now I went, I went back to visit the same place. Uh, back in the 1980s, when I was doing a car campaign for Mercedes, and they gave me this car to photograph, but also said, why don't you drive around Paris tonight? So I thought, fine. So I went back to look at my, uh, my apartment, and all the way around the, the, the roundabout um, at Port Dauphine are Brazilian transvestites. Most incredible-looking people. But um, that was what, you know, <coughs> at the time it had been sort of field mice for me, and harvest mice. But, um, <laughs> it was a very, very different vibe, should we put it that way. <laughs> but that's what really fueled my love of France and love of Europe um, was this sort of exposure to this different culture. I mean, you've got to think, 1966 in Britain, we never heard of a salad. This had salad <laughs> cream all over it. You know, the idea of a pizza or anything was kind of completely alien to it. The Second World War was way past, but it wasn't. It was like, you know, when I was born, it was, what, 12 years since the war? Or something? Well, not very long ago. So it was still very present in people's minds. Um, and I think that this, my parents had this massive desire to live their life a different way to their parents. Mm. Um, you know, my mother wasn't allowed to be a doctor by her father because he said it was unladylike. Um, you know, it's, it's a really big cultural shift. And the 60s were a great time for these huge cultural shifts. The reason we're sitting in front of this um, beautiful Barbary print of the riots of 68, I remember driving with my parents. My parents had got a Citroen. They got one of the last Citroens off the conveyor belts before the general strike happened. And so the, the, the riots of 68 were already happening, already, you know, there was civil unrest and mobs of groups of students and workers in the street. And the whole of Paris felt very much in upheaval. And I remember driving uh, or being driven by my father through, I can't remember which little tiny street in Paris, and the car being surrounded by um, students or workers or, you know, whichever group. And my father being terrified that they were going to turn the car over and set it to light because we had these blasted bright orange number plates saying corps diplomatique so it's like you were obviously part of the establishment um but they were fine but no I, paris was incredibly important for me it, my father who was a, a lovely man he was a psychologist as i sort of sex education uh, as a child he used to leave sex books around the house so the children could just find them yeah, that yeah. was his idea of sex education on top of that he decided it'd be a good idea to take his sons um to strip clubs in paris so I, I was taken to the Folie Bergère and the Casino de Paris. So I have a very strange memory of Paris. And what with my mother wearing uh, Rive Gauche, Saint Laurent Rive Gauche, and seeing the, the women in the strip clubs, I'm sure it influenced my outcome of being, becoming a photographer. Do you see yourself as a bit of a social observer in that way then? 
I think everything you do is social observation. I mean, it's where you get um, inspired from is just seeing life. You know, a lot of life happens in the street. So I think that's where inspiration comes from. But, I, you know, the first project I did was a book on skinheads. That was 1979. And that was a very pure sort of bit of social reportage. You were a skinhead yourself, weren't you? What, what attracted you to that skinhead culture? Skinhead and, and... girls. <laughs> it's, it's true, yeah. You're 18, 17, 18. What else are you looking for other than sex? So, you know, skinhead girls is the truth. I love the music. I love the dancing. I love the clothes. And then I love the big fuck you to kind of everything my parents stood for, which was remarkably daft, considering my parents were incredibly liberal, very open-minded. Um, but I would just felt, and I think it's important for children to rebel against their parents. And I think children all do. I think in some way they find a way of saying, I'm an individual, I'm not what my parents are. I'm different from that. And I grew up in a very, very liberal family. So my parents didn't believe in discipline. I grew up slightly waywardly, should we say, and I just felt sort of angry at the age of sort of 17, 18, like most kids do. They don't really understand the world, don't really understand what's going on. And I think skinism was partly a sort of way of, uh, uh, you know, sort of sticking my fingers up to everything, really. What kind of parent are you out of interest? Have you gone against <laughs> that? What do you reckon? I try my best. Um, no, it's a funny thing. I'm more authoritarian than my parents were. Because I, at the time, as a sort of, you know, a young teenager growing up, I thought this is fantastic. I'll do whatever I want, stay out where I want, sleep with who I want, go where I want, do what I want, take the drugs I want, etc., etc. And you look back and you think, oh, is that just neglect? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, where was the parental responsibility in bringing up these kids? So I tried to, I took, I think I took a lot from what my parents believed in as part of how to try and bring up my kids. Yeah, you, know, you I think the best thing is you bring up your kids with love and attention, you know? that you need to be there for them and you need to be excited to be with them and you obviously need to love them. Every parent will say that they've failed in certain respects, but if you try your best, that's all you can do. Uh, but, you know, I had supper with my three children last night, so we're, we're all still just about on speaking terms. Well done, that's good, that's good. And in terms of the photography side, when did you first pick up a camera and, and how did you end up going down that route? You have to look back to the 1970s Cameras were not so widely available. So we happened to have a camera, a family camera, which was my father owned it. And so I would ask him on Saturdays if I could borrow the family camera. And it was a way of interacting socially. So if you went out to, we lived in Cambridge, so you went to the nearest big town you'd go to was Cambridge. So you went into Cambridge Market Square with a camera, you could take pictures of people who you like look of. So you made, it meant you could interact with people. So it was just a social thing, really. It was just a sort of fun thing to do. And... I found I had a, some sort of skill at it, which was remarkably different to everything else in my life, which I had no skill at whatsoever. My mother wanted me to be a doctor, and I sort of went along with that. I liked the idea of being a doctor and doing something worthwhile for society, and I liked the idea of helping people. But then I had none of the application and none of the sort of discipline to sit down and do any work. I took up photography as an A-level, and suddenly found I had something that I really enjoyed. And it was that sort of weird thing, like, oh, I really enjoy doing this, but it's not work. Because work is something you sit down, it's really boring, and you learn a thousand bones are in the body, or whatever it is, or every bloody archery. And So that was clearly work, and that was clearly what one had to do to be a doctor. Anyway, I got to university, Chelsea College, University of London, um, in 1978, slap bang on the middle of the King's Road. <laughs> every distraction you could possibly imagine. I had no desire to study medicine and basically got kicked out after a year. And it suddenly dawned on me, sitting in Lightfoot Hall, 
which is that um, small block of flats on the King's Road, looking out at the sun setting over West London every evening, um, thinking, actually, I really want to do photography. And so in November 1979, I joined Bournemouth and Paul College of Art. And I suddenly found myself in a place where I could do something that I loved. And that was what I was supposed to be doing. So I just fell in love with photography and haven't stopped. Haven't stopped. Not, not a breath in me doesn't love it as much as I did then. Never, never stopped loving it. The freedom of suddenly being able to be encouraged to do what you love you know, was totally alien for me. But it was amazing. And I, the thing I was most interested in, as I said, was skinhead girls. And there was a whole skinhead revival going on at the time. I came back from Belgium in 1970. Skinhead started in about 1967. When it first started, it was everything anti-fashion. So at the time, the sort of, you know, everybody was looking was sort of Carnaby Street and dandyism and psychedelia and et cetera. And you had these kids saying, no, not for us. So they would wear their dad's working clothes. Anything that wasn't fashionable, old hobnail boots, donkey jackets, you know, the, the collarless shirts, all that sort of stuff, the braces, the baggy you know, anything that wasn't fashion at all. And then, of course, if you go around dressed like that, you can't get in the dance halls. So they started dressing a little bit different, and they adopted a more of the kind of rude boy sort of a way of dressing, so with suits, three-button, single-breast suits, and uh, then the tonic suits and the pocket handkerchiefs, and they it sort of slipped from skinhead into suede head, so the hair got slightly longer, wasn't shaved. You know, those were the kind of, you know, the skinheads that I encountered when I came back um, in 1970. I had hair down to here in 1970, and I was wearing the fashions of Brussels. I stuck out like a sore thumb. I did not look like any other person in England at that time. Um, and I, first thing I remember doing is getting a brick chucked at me by a bunch of skinheads. We arrived back from Brussels. We stopped off at a little house in Petersham, which had been standing empty for some years. Uh, I went for a walk around the corner and met 20 skinheads. I was just seeing the film Woodstock. So that's where I wanted to be. Um, and yet most of the kids there were little skinheads because that sort of was the fashion at the time. And then I started working out the group dynamic of these cults like skinheadism and any youth cult, to be honest, is you take on one, you take on all. So you all look the same. You challenge me, you challenge everybody else that looks like me. So it, it's a weird power thing. So kids have got no power whatsoever in the streets. All of a sudden they dress in a certain way, they're part of a certain movement, they're part of a certain clan. So it empowers kids, basically, um, to be part of a, a bigger thing. And it went against all the things that, you know, as I said, my parents were stood for, which is sort of, you know, very, very liberal views, which, of course, I have as well. But um, you, at the time, you just want to rebel against anything. You don't want to be like everything around you. Mm. It, was, yeah, it was just a way of finding out who you are. And I think there are very, very few rites of passage left in, in contemporary society. So people drift aimlessly from childhood to adulthood and back again, not quite knowing where they are. But I think for me, the whole skinhead thing was that, was finding out who I was. Mm. So if I pushed myself into a situation which really I should not have been in and really was quite extreme, then I would find out who I was. So those two things clashed or came together with me being a photographer. Mm. So the first thing I did in photography was document what I was into, which was skinheadism. And I would turn up at places uh, which I really should not have been at. You know, you sit next to somebody who's so right-wing, you don't know how to start to have a conversation with them. And you end up places which are turning into kind of huge fights. I remember being in Acklam Hall in Notting Hill Gate, um, when Notting Hill Gate was still very rough. I was with a bunch of East End skinheads, and all the gangs from Notting Hill Gate basically found out there were a bunch of East End skinheads in Acklam Hall and just stormed the place. Things are flying through the air, and 
people are covered in blood and it's, it's, it's a weird thing. So suddenly you're in this sort of carnage um, and then the kids outside <laughs> couldn't get in. So they climbed onto the roof and started kicking the roof in. And I can remember seeing a boot coming through the polystyrene tiles of the roof. I think, fuck, this isn't going well. So it was a bit kind of hairy, to say the least. Um, but it, it's part of growing up. You know, it's part of finding out who you are. Just a quick reminder that this podcast is made by The Modern House, the company that I co-founded back in 2005. The Modern House is a design-led estate agency that allows you to buy, sell, or learn about the most beautifully designed modern homes across the UK. At the moment, you'll find contemporary houses in locations from Hampstead to Hampshire, some amazing mid-century flats throughout London, plots of land in Scotland, Camberwell, and Hertfordshire, and a grade two star-listed modernist masterpiece in Somerset. If you're more of a classicist, it's worth taking a look at our sister brand, Inigo, where there's everything from a converted Victorian sweet shop to a Georgian townhouse on the seafront. You can find links to both websites in the show notes. Back to the podcast. I, I, I mean, I, I know quite a lot of photographers and image makers, and if I could characterise them, and, it, and it's a shame to do this to an extent, but a lot of them, I have to say, did not do very well academically. They struggled yeah. with that, with those kind of conventions and that structure. Yeah. Um, and I would say that they they all have a sort of hyperactivity about them, maybe. Mm. And they definitely all see the world through quite a particular eye. Mm. Do you identify with that? And, and, and how, you, how would you describe that in yourself? What is that? Um, I think I'm dyslexic. Yeah. So I was at the sort of generation before it was like people started realizing actually, you know, there are these problems like dyslexia, which we need to deal with and not just condemn these poor kids to being called thick. And my father was a psychologist and I think he had an inkling. And as I said, I came from a very um, free thinking family unit. We were encouraged to literally go out and find out what the world was about through experience. So, um, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of you don't fit into the way that, you know, knowledge was was taught in schools. Therefore, you know, you, you find different ways of doing it. So, yeah, I think I wasn't a particularly academic student. And photography became a way of expressing myself and a way of having some sort of voice. And I think that that's important for everybody to feel that you have something to say, that you're here for a reason, that you're doing something. You know, I wasn't doing well academically. And the idea of going to some sort of slightly kind of tedious job studying, I don't know, some form of science just wasn't doing it for me at all. Did that make you scrappy then? Did it, did it give you that mindset of, I just need to, you know, I need to haul myself up and make this work? Yeah. I mean, sort of realised when you're sort of facing a pretty bleak future. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, if I've got some talent at this, I really, really need to work at it. So when I started doing photography at Bournemouth and Poole, um, I literally devoted myself to it. You know, every single waking second of every single day, never stopped. Um, and I kind of kept that attitude going for years until I had children. We used to think, actually, there's something in my life more important than my photography. Because mm. obviously, I, I love my wife, uh, Charlotte, I met um, right earlier on in my career. But she took me on knowing what I was. <laughs> <laughs> the kids don't. The kids get born into it. No choice. No saying it, et cetera, et cetera. Having children really opened me up as a person. My vision about myself and about the world became much larger. Whereas before it was focused on this sort of 
got to do, you've got to succeed, you've got to push, 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 push. Every second, every day, Christmas Day, New Year's Day, everything, nothing, no holidays, nothing. Work, 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 work. I loved it. You know, why would you stop doing something? You'd have to go and sit on a beach or get drunk or go watch a film or go down a pub or why would you do that? Because here's something you love. Why would you stop doing it? And so all those sort of social occasions got slightly sort of pushed to the side. Um, and I still very much that way now. I, I can't stand social occasions, partly because I just find them annoying and partly because I've got so much I want to do. You know, and one does realise when I'm 64, this is 65 this year, you know, there's a finite time to do it all. And I see so many things I want to do. It's a bit like, mm, um, you better get on with it then. So I haven't really ever lost that sort of dedication and passion and drive to do it. And other than the fact that I have three children, now two grandchildren, you know, who, um, who are above my photography, above my work. And, you know, so it's, you do have a, 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 a change in your life, in your outlook to life when you have children. I remember when my first daughter was born, it was like heaven. I just thought, wow, you know, there are different ways of seeing life. And so that sort of fiercely ambitious, fiercely driven, totally sort of, you know, I work harder than anybody else on this planet, that attitude slightly changed at that point. That's interesting. I, well, don't, think, I don't think my kids would say that. Yeah, I think yeah, they'd say, yeah. you know, a bloody change. Well, let's move on to your, your family home where you brought yes. up your kids. Tell us about your house, because it's a pretty special place. Very special place for me and incredibly uh, important in so many different ways. So I moved, um, when I came out of Bournemouth Cool College of Art, the little 1950s, tiny little Festival of Britain house had been sitting empty for about 15 years. My parents gifted it to me um, as my graduation present, which I'll be endlessly thankful for. It meant I had a base fairly close to London. It meant that I had somewhere to, you know, take pictures, a little bit of a studio thing. I remember taking pictures of the psychedelic furs and Carling Carter in my garage um, and doing, you remember that film Scandal with Bridget Fonda in it and oh, yeah. Joanna Wally Kilmer? That was photographed in my house. So it was a functioning little thing. But as soon as I got there, I thought, I want to change this. I want to build a studio. I did a record cover for a group called Bananarama. And I worked in a, in a studio in Notting Hill Gate. I thought, this is fantastic. Big daylight windows. And I thought, wow, daylight flooding in. How beautiful. I want to have a daylight studio. And I asked my friend, Peter Savile, to recommend some architects. I said, Peter, who, who are the great architects in London at the moment? He said, well, there's uh, John Pawson. There's Rick Mather, there's Claudia Silverstreen, there's uh, David Chipperfield. So I phoned them all up and uh, all wrote to them, all come and whatever. We went round to David Chipperfield's um, practice to meet him and he said, oh, come for supper. <laughs> went to his apartment and fell in love. Fell in love with him as a man, uh, his work, the whole prospect of it. You know, and I don't think you change architects many times during your life. Once you find your architect, I don't think you shop around. It's not like fashion. So... Um, we asked David to build a house and to incorporate Dalek Studios. We went around all the neighbours and said to them, look, this is what we're going to build, showed them the plans. A very beautiful, very simple chip of field kind of two cubes. I was 27. Uh, my wife was 24, no, 22. We had no money. You know, we were putting everything we had into this mortgage to be able to build this house. Well, I was like really excited. I thought, I've got David Chipperfield, who's obviously, he was a young architect, but obviously a great modernist architect. Um, how exciting, you know, people should be like putting bunting out in the street. They weren't at all. You know, there was a sort of anti-modernism thing and, you know, the buildings like Trellick Tower and stuff were kind of vilified and, you know, all the sort of modernist architecture was, was, was vilified and responsible for every, every form of social dysfunction. There was very, very little appreciation of modern architecture. Anyway, 
one shouldn't bear grudges, and I don't. What I don't think the neighbours understood, or, 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 or I think they were surprised by, is when we built the house, first thing you get is coach loads of architectural students coming down it. It becomes an architectural pilgrimage. There are so few modern houses in Britain that actually, for if you're, if you're an architecture student, this is, this is something worth seeing. So we'd wake up on a Saturday morning, open the blinds of the kitchen, and there'd be like kind of 30 students going. Yeah. <laughs> and at first you think, oh, how lovely. And so you say, oh, come in. So you invite 30 students around, and you show them around your actually quite small little house, and they all go and do things, weird things like sit in the bath. <laughs> uh, you know, architectural students are like, you know, which was really lovely. But then my wife was there on Friday night, and I was in Paris, I think I was um, on a shoot. And these two or three Spanish architectural students came, knocked on the door about eight o'clock at night. And Michelle said, I'm, I'm very sorry, we, I can't leave, and it's eight o'clock at night. And, and they were really cross. They said, well, it says access here, you know, because we, we didn't realise this. As soon as you let the students in, they go back to the college and say, Petersham, modern house, access. So they can all go around there, and they can all go and sit in your bath. So they were furious, they weren't allowed in. So the sort of students tailed off. But I don't think the neighbours quite anticipated the kind of, you know, because literally, you know, Saturdays, we'd just like kind of get loads of students every, all the time sitting outside or bicycling around and coming and looking. And it was just funny, funny. Well, it's nice that people fun. appreciated it. Yeah, it's a, there's a reaction to every action, you know. And I think young uh, couples and young people were, were excited by new architecture and new ways of living, except just like they were in the 1950s. A lot of that sort of energy was, was starting, you know, you had programs like Grand Design started up and that sort of thing. So people could see the joy of creating a space. I mean, there's nothing, honestly, there's nothing nicer than having a house built for you by you know, a good architect. It's like having a suit made for you or a haute couture dress made for you, but it's your house. So everything is tailor-made. The height of the mirror, the, you know, everything else. We built the first house in 1990, and then by 1997, um, we had three children, the house was too small, we were thinking of moving, but I, you know, we just built the house, like sort of hardly 10 years beforehand. Just by chance, the house next door came up on the market and we had to buy it secretly. And we got David Chipperfield to double the size of the house. So we then had a substantial house on Arlington Road and a whole fresh group of neighbours to fight. So they all came back up again. Not, well, actually, one of the same ones and then a few more new, new ones. And in the end, we sort of won them all around. You know, people accepted what it is. And people, you know, people get on with their lives. It's actually the idea, and I've always, I've never understood this, um, that, you know, we have to have these repetitions. All these houses look exactly the bloody same. Mm -hmm. You think, what is it? Why do you want to look the same? So I've never really understood that. If you go to Paris and you've got kind of, you know, the mixture of architectural styles in Paris, and how glorious it looks. And I think, you know, if you're building, it's important for, for future generations to not to be told, well, actually, there's nothing, nothing new. Just look to the past. Go back to the past. Reference the past. Look at the past. Be part of it. You need to say to people, do things, try things, you know, expand our horizons, do different architecture. You know, so I always thought that it was a, a really weird and probably quite British thing. It's this sort of retrospective, sort of looking back and, you know, to a time which never existed when we were great. And hmm. now that it's built and been your family home for so long, how would you characterise... The, the value that it adds to your life. There's nothing more important than the spaces you live in, in my opinion, for you know, shaping you, how you feel about things, making you feel positive about life and love and everything else. It's been designed and created, you know, with the idea of making your life better. So the, the house is sort of built around a courtyard 
So all your views, all your main views are out into the garden. And so you could be anywhere in the world. And I remember we were so in love with it, and still are, the stone, when it was first built, and you realize things because it's got sort of you know, roof lights and the pattern of the rain at night on the walls of the drip drops of rain and the color, different colors from different rooms. And, you know, it, it's just just full of beauty from natural light um, and the way the light interacts with the house. It's um, open plan in a very sort of uh, uh, simple way. And it worked for us. It worked perfectly to bring up our three kids in there. So I remember once um, it was one of the kids' birthday, and we just filled the whole room with balloons, you know, and just let them all kind of drift out through the house. And we, yeah, it, was, it was just a lovely house to, to bring kids up. And I, for me, if I have clean spaces and spaces which feel kind of organized, my ability to think through problems is much better than if it's very cluttered. All the objects in it are like noise. So if I'm trying to rationalize a thought process, actually the sort of visual noise is very disturbing for me. Because of course, you've got three young kids, you know, they don't put things away. And you have to sort of go with that. Um, but for me, you know, when now the kids have all left home, and, you know, it, the, the cleanness of the house, I don't mean the, the sanitation, I mean the, the sort of the cleanness of the spaces, is just really beautifully kind of helpful for me to, to think, to dream, and to all those sorts of things that I do. I'm incredibly fortunate to have had a house built by David Sheffield. Incredibly fortunate. I worked for a long time, for 10 years, with Kanye West. Now, Kanye West is a lot of things to a lot of people. But the conversations that I used to have with Kanye, you know, he was saying, you know, why, why is there a first class, uh, a economy class and a kind of capital class on a plane? Why can't it all be first class? Why is cheap housing made by bad architects? You know, his whole thing, I know lots of other things, but his whole thing was to sort of say, actually, we should raise everybody's standards. These things should be for everybody. You know, we shouldn't be allowing property developers who are just in it for the money to build houses in Britain. We should be commissioning the best architects in the world to do this. They should be built by the best architects, not by people who have got no idea about life, no idea about how to live in a house, etc., etc. You know, so. um, I do think I'm incredibly lucky to have had the chance to build a house with an architect so, so brilliant as David. You know, it's uplifting. Yeah, I've had fantastic conversations with, with David. You know, in my life, there's only been about three or four um, people who I consider close friends. So yes, there's a, a deep friendship and a love there. Just picking up what you said there, you said you, you've not had very many close friendships. Why, why is that? Is that just because you're too relentless with your work? Or? Um, I don't know how many relationships you need in your life. Mm. I'm married. I'm married to the same girl I was married to 30-odd years ago. Um, I've had relationships with people who I still really, really care for. You know, those are the people who would, would stay in my, in my sort of affections and my admiration. Um, I think that's also really important. But the, the way I, I live and the way I work, and the two are exactly the same thing, but there's actually no difference in my work and my life. Um, you know, you, you're not looking for lots of distractions. It's like a lot of people, uh, I believe, work in a sort of, you know, we have to do a job for the week, because we need to earn some money and put food in front of the roof of our head. And on the weekends, we can do what we want. And actually, my life is, I can do what I want, not I can do what I want, but you know, it's what I want to do. It's one and the same thing. One and the same thing. It's all just the stuff I love doing. Mm. Um, so there is no differentiation. So I'm not in a sort of uh, position where I'm looking for relationships um, outside of my work. So you, you obviously have a serious work ethic 
given that relentlessness, yeah. is there a way in which your home sort of helps you somehow distance yourself from that side of your brain that's, that, that's always on? You know, how does the home kind of help you to decompress a little bit? Um, I don't know if it does help me decompress. I'm not necessarily sure I'm looking for decompression. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't really function in that way. It's more part of the sort of music or the melody of my life. And it sort of goes throughout it. You know, it's just part of the sort of, you know, the melody of which, of which I live my life. You know, and it it's just fits into it. Uh, in a way, it gives rise to show studio. So, you know, my house has been very important for me and for my career and for my way of working, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But show studio became another, another space. And I, I think show studio in some way has been my... Uh, ability to indulge f- frivolity, um, eclecticism, um, to have, you know, surrounded by anything I want or, or, you know, it's a working studio. You basically, everything looks gorgeous. You know, and literally you don't have to light the background. It's just the daylight does it all for you. So free lighting. Um, and so we started um, doing lots of shoots there and we opened a shop there. Westminster Council said, you can't have this building unless you open up for retail. So we started selling things as well. We started selling the props from shoots originally. And there's some great things made. Some of the great set designers like Michael Howes and Annie Tomlinson and Gideon Ponte. You know, these are craftspeople and they make great things. Um, Shona Heath. And so we started um, selling the props from fashion shoots. And then we started just selling art. You know, and all it's, it's fantastic immersion into art. You know, and so these exhibitions come together. The, the ground floor was, was the gallery, and then the upstairs was one long desk. It had all of the show studio down it, so all of sort of 10, 15 members of the studio were the same desk, and then a little studio at the far end of it. But underneath it, in the basement, there was this one room, a little black room, and it had black concrete floor, which had been painted black, it had black walls, and it had black cloth on the ceiling. And that was the spookiest, weirdest little room. We did the spookiest, weirdest stuff in there. Lady Gaga... Um, Came, I don't know if you, any of you follow Lady Gaga, but at a certain point in Lady Gaga's career, we decided, and she decided, we decided together that she should be a man. And she should be a man called Joe Calderoni. And so Lady Gaga, with her blonde hair and the poker face and all that sort of stuff, came into the show studio and we made her up as a man. And her assistant went out to do some shopping, some makeup started. And then when, when it was finished, she looked so unrecognizable. Her assistant, this is her assistant, came back and was standing next to her and said, Hey, wh- where's Gaga? <laughs> I'm like Gaga wow. standing literally next to her. Anyway, Gaga decided to be a man. She should piss in the urinal, standing up. <laughs> so she did, bless her, because she's very, Gaga's like 100%. She doesn't do anything by half. She is the real deal. And so she urinated into the urinal, which we had to put on the wall and <laughs> make safe. Um, and uh, then she wrote on it. She signed it. Um, I can't remember what she signed it. Something like, um, I'm no Duchamp, but I love fucking with you. Very good. Um, And she um, then left a pubic hair in it. Um, All great, apart from the cleaner came out and I thought, I'll dust this out. Off goes the pubic hair first night. And then another cleaner came many years later, saw it and decided actually to get rid of the the felt tip pen writing on his shirt and they cleaned it. So if you go downstairs, you'll see it on the wall, sort of in a weird place. You'll think think, Ryan will hop out the wall. But it is the urinal that Gaga peed in um, when she was being a man. So that was the sort of thing that happened in that room. And we had a Marina Abranovic piece in that room, which was shown, basically just put black room, we painted a white square, and we projected the film Marina Abranovic 
screaming. Have you ever seen that film? Yes, it's I have. Horrendous, all day long, <laughs> all day long without stop. Um, show Studio allows me to do that, which I don't. Yeah, you know, uh, mm. I wouldn't normally get the space to do that. We're changing Show Studio. Well, changing it. We're um, changing its physical form. It's becoming virtual, and we're going to create a virtual show studio um, and show studio will be represented as an artificial intelligence. So everything we've said over the years, everything we've done, et cetera, et cetera, now becomes accessible by a sort of, you know, chat GPT linked AI. It's trying to change show studio into something other than the sort of physical to make it into the sort of uh, virtual version of it. I mean, I've been involved in AI and, and uh, 3D scanning and the whole idea of augmented reality, virtual reality, 3D environments, robot. Yeah, I've been working so it's almost it's this it's natural path to do that. You know where AI is taking us as a creative, um, uh, creative people, and also where it's taking us as humanity and everything else. I find fascinating, mm. and all of the dialogue around at the moment is negative. Of course, mm. there's there is a part of it which is negative. Of course, there's a part which is positive. And creatively, it's taking us into places which we've never been able to be in before. You know, it's just doing things that you know I can now write in a, a, a prompt and get a 3D statue out of it. It's a huge thing that's going to change. Um, I read quite a lot during lockdown. I have a garden, which again is lovely. Um, so I thought, well, I will dig a vegetable patch and I will start growing some vegetables. I found a real pleasure in it. I really love it. It's, um, I'm not entering anything into competitions, but um, <laughs> it's all I could have done with my cauliflowers. Um, but it, it is a, a weirdly... I'm not say spiritual because I'm an atheist, but it's it's a bit, it's something a little bit different to anything else I've experienced. Especially, I don't know which one, when if you grow your own food. It's just sort of mindful, isn't it? it there's something there which is important and felt fundamental. And I didn't mean to discover it. I just thought, I don't know where the food's going to come from. We're right at the beginning of a global lockdown. So I started growing all the sort of, you know, I just, I just grow the things I eat. So, you know, lettuce, tomatoes. So that became really fascinating. I also read the Bible during lockdown. So I thought, what am I going to do? I've been told I can't go out. Um, so what am I going to do? And I started reading the Bible. I thought, I'll, I'll read something I'll never otherwise read. It is shocking. I came away from that, reading that book, so profoundly shocked by it. And it's just sort of this weird sort of a medieval value system. So I kind of got fascinated with it and repelled by it. Um, so it's a tricky sort of thing for me because as I totally respect all your religions and all your religious belief, and I'm not attacking you by saying that I find it baffling. And I find that very hard. So I kind of get spirituality, yeah, yeah. and I get the upliftment, I get the sense of purpose, and I get the sense of need, and I, all that sort of stuff. But I can't find myself sort of saying, yes, I have it. You know, it's just like, no. But my, I guess this, these long, slightly anecdotal and, and drifting stories are to get to a point. As well as reading the Bible, I also read James Lovelock's Novocene. Do you know the author, James Lovelock? No. Fantastic author. Um, died at 103. His last book was written when he was about 102. Great mind. He invented the concept of Gaia, you know, the sort of planet as a, as a sort of living thing. And his last book um, is called Novocene, The Rise of Hyperintelligence, where he talks about AI and talks about how it's developing. And where he contextualizes it and why it's important to sort of see it in terms of the Bible is because we see ourselves, I think, as the end of the evolutionary journey. So we look at ourselves with a certain amount of complacent arrogance. I think this is as good as it gets. Um, of course it's not. We're just one step on an evolutionary journey. So why do we ever think that this is a combination of it? So actually, 
Or what are we here for? And if we're looking for some sort of raison d'etre, some sort of meaning to our life, you, know, you might want to think that actually what we're not doing is protecting life, we're protecting intelligence. You know, maybe this, our important role on this evolutionary journey that we're on is actually the creation, protection, expansion of intelligent thought. So that's why I'm sort of interested in AI. Because if we do, and this is what gets lots of humans upset, if we do concede that we're not the end of the evolutionary journey and there might indeed be a life form um, that comes after us, it needn't necessarily be a carbon-based life form, it could be a silicon-based life form. So, you know, I can understand in, in terms of sort of, you know, human, humanity is beautiful and all that sort of thing. Yes, yes, yes. But I think we just have to, in searching for a purpose of why we're here, what we're doing, where we're going, etc., etc., I would put my belief in intelligence rather than life. And that's a very strange thing to say, but I think that's probably the most important eternal goal we're looking for. What do you think is the future of how we'll be living? I think it depends how small you want that or how big you want that. We're looking at space travel, if we're looking at colonization of other planets, if we're looking um, to do what is it, the Dyson project where they put a, <laughs> a geodesic dome around the sun and harness its energies, it depends where you want to go with this. In a more science fiction way, we leave our footprint all over the internet, all the information's out there, I'll live on whatever. If I walk under a bus this afternoon, I don't get wiped off the internet. I just get my physical form gets wiped. But um, I'm still existing on there. You know, my thoughts are all out there. I've spoken so much and written so much and broadcast so much. There's enough material out there. Are you interested in, in leaving that legacy then? I'm not interested in legacy leaving. I'm not interested in that. Um, I have so much I want to do. And if I can find a way of keeping on doing it, even if it's virtually, um, I'd be very, very happy. I'm interested in keeping on working because it's keeping on understanding. You know, I, when I first started getting into AI, this is quite a while ago, I was thinking, I would actually like to see if I gave an AI all of my negatives, all of my film, all of my, everything I've ever done, could it work out how I take a photograph? So I've got no bloody idea how I take a photograph. So could it look at it and work out how I take a photograph and therefore recreate myself as an AI? Um, Charlotte said to me, no, you don't. <laughs> you are not leaving your children fighting Google. Um, <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so, no, but I, it's a fascinating thought. It's, you know, I, we have certain ways of being. So, you know, I probably always hold a camera at the same height. I probably always say the same sorts of things. I probably always sensitive to the same colour spectrum. All those sorts of quite basic things that start to become the ingredient of making up a picture. Mm. Photography isn't about recording what you see, it's about recording what you desire. So you're working in an imaginary space in any case. As I say, it doesn't take much to think that, you know, all of the information I've pulled out into the internet and everywhere else can be assembled and made into some sort of version of me. I'm going to ask you one final question and it's a challenge in a way because what you've said today is that you're such a future-facing person in terms of your mindset. So if I can ask you to be a little bit revisionist for a moment and you look back over your life, what, what, what do you think will give you the most satisfaction? Well, one answer would be the children. Because there's no other way around it. The children are um, the most important thing in my life. Um, but if we said, okay, not the children, you can't answer the children, what would be the most important thing? People I met, people I've engaged with, um, the knowledge I've learned, um, the slight understanding of life I'm getting. Um, that's the thing that's the kind of the flow that runs all the way through it.
this ability to to be able to walk up to anybody and ask to interact with them. You know, I can the weirdly beautiful thing about what I do is I have total access to anybody in the world ever. I can get refused, of course, but I can walk up to anybody in the world. And as a photographer, I can say to him, excuse me, can I take your photograph? So that that's quite a rare thing. And I love doing it. I love talking to people. I get told off for stopping strangers in the street and talking to them because I find people fascinating. So the biggest pleasure for me, if we're not going to talk about my children, the biggest pleasure for me has been that contact with other human beings all the way through. And whoever it's been, whether it's been Gaga or Kanye or Alexander McQueen or John Galliano or Jill Sandler or Yoji Amoto or Ray Kalakubo or anybody you care to mention that I've worked with has been a, an experience, has been a sort of seeing life through other people's eyes. And that for me is the reason I work, to be honest. That's always been my thing that I've always come back to. You know, it's not the only thing I do, obviously I photograph roses and mountains, but it is part, that has been the thing that I've found the most incredible is other people. Amazing. It's the answer. Yeah. It's honestly so interesting, Nick. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so, you. so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. To see photographs of the spaces we've discussed in this episode, please head over to the Modern House website via the link in the show notes. Remember to follow the show to hear about upcoming episodes. Please leave us a quick review if you have time and of course share it with anyone else who might enjoy it.